Well, we're going to be having communion this morning, and we're going to be a bit pressed for time. I'm probably going to go a tad bit long because I'm going to actually do 25 verses this morning. (laughs) I know, I know, it's a shock to your system. We are starting this morning, New Year, we're starting on our journey through the Bible. So, you'll want to go to page one. We're going to go back to the beginning. The book of Genesis, chapter one. It's such a rich passage, I want you to have your Bibles there and read this along with me. We're going to read the first 25 verses, and then next time we'll pick it up at verse 26. Such a rich, rich book. In the beginning, God. We can practically go home now. (laughs) But I prepared much for you, so we're going to stay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate the water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so, God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land And the gathered waters he called seas. God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that, that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth, fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Such a solemn passage, huh? The book of Genesis is really the book of beginnings. In fact, the word Genesis means beginning. It means origin or source. And this book really tells us about the beginnings of everything, with the exception of God. Everything that God made. It tells us in the beginning, God. It tells us about the beginnings of the created universe and the world in this first chapter, as we've just read. The book of Genesis tells us about the the creation of the man and the woman. And we'll begin to explore that next time. The book of Genesis tells us about the beginnings of sin and evil and death. The problem of evil is, is, is a problem that everybody has to contend with. And, and we wonder, if God is so good, why is there evil in the world? Well, the Bible tells us about the beginnings of evil. Genesis tells us in chapter 3, the first part, about the promise of redemption. It tells us about the beginnings of family life in chapter 4, the beginning of civilization from chapter 4 through chapter 9. Genesis tells us about the beginnings of the nations in chapters 10 and 11. And then in chapters 12 through 50, Genesis tells us about the beginnings of God's promised people, his chosen people, who would be the vehicle through which the Savior would come, Israel. So Genesis is really a very, very foundational book. And as we study it over the next couple of weeks... Uh, we're going to break it basically into two parts. And as we do so, part one goes from chapter 1 through chapter 11, and it covers four major events. The creation, chapters 1 and 2, which we're going to look at uh, this morning. The fall of man, chapters 3 and 4. The, the flood, chapters 5 through 9 and the Tower of Babel, and all the events surrounding that in chapters 10 and 11. So the first 11 chapters cover those four major events. The second section of Genesis, the much larger section, chapters 12 through 50, covers four outstanding persons. First one will be Abraham, the man of faith, chapters 12 through 23. The second person would be Isaac, the beloved son, chapters 24 through 26. And then Jacob, you recall whose name was changed to Israel, chapters 27 through 36. And who do you think the last person we're going to study? Joseph. Joseph. Man who experienced a life of suffering and redemption, didn't he? Life of suffering and glory. So Genesis is 
divided for our purposes into those two major sections, and those are the subjects we're going to look at. Genesis 1.1, the very first verse of the Bible, very first verse of that book, is the foundational verse of the Bible. That's critical. If the book of Genesis is indeed the Bible's foundational book, as we have just seen in chapter 1, then the first 11 chapters, which deal with the whole world and with all the nations, constitute the foundation for the rest of Genesis, which deals again specifically with the beginning of the nation of Israel. The first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1, is probably the most widely read sentence ever written. Think about this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Those are probably the most widely read words ever written. You say, what do you mean by that? Is the Bible known as the best-selling book ever? Probably read by more people than ever. Any other book? Would you agree with me that most people at least start to read the Bible? Where do you think they start? Page one. So most people have read at least the opening words of the Bible, even though they may have not gotten any further than that. So this first verse, the foundational verse for the Bible, the most widely read words ever written, I propose to you. If you believe Genesis 1-1, if you believe those words, then you will not find it difficult to believe anything else recorded in the Bible. If you believe that God created the heavens and the earth, that's a matter of faith. If you believe it, you're not going to have trouble with anything else in the Bible. If you have a problem with those words, if you have a problem with 1-1, one, one, you're going to have a problem with everything else in the Bible, quite simply. You see why it's foundational? See, if you believe that God created all things, then you can believe that he controls all things, and you can also believe that he can do all things. You can believe that he's good. You can believe that you can trust him. You can rest in him. But if you don't believe Genesis 1-1, then, then none of that is possible. And furthermore, the first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, refutes all of the false philosophies of man that purport to tell us about the origin and the meaning of the world. The first verse refutes all of these false philosophies of man. Let's just run through them real quickly. We all heard of these. Atheism would be the first one. Atheism simply says that there is no God. I love to talk to atheists. Atheists claim to know that there's no God. I said, are you sure there's no God? He says, there is no God. Let me ask you a question. Do you know everything? Well, of course not. And if you don't know everything, how can you possibly know that there's no God? There's no such thing as a real atheist. At best, they ju they're not sure. So I like to always point that out to them and help them. <laughs> verse 1 refutes atheism, categorically refutes it, because verse 1 says that everything was created by God. Verse 1 refutes pantheism. Pantheism equates God with creation. P 
pan means everything or all. Uh, theos, theism, uh, everything is God, all is God. You know, it's like Shirley MacLaine and, and, and all those folks who say, I am God, we're all God, it's all God, you know. There's no difference. No, pantheism is not true. In verse 1 refutes it because God is transcendent to that which he created. He is not part of the creation. He is not part of this world. He is transcendent to it, separate from it. Verse 1 refutes polytheism. Polytheism says that there are many gods, and there are lots of religions today, and certainly all the ancient Near Eastern religions in which the culture of the Bible was written to believed in many gods. But it refutes that because Genesis 1-1 says, one God created all things. And chapter 1 is a marvelous um, anti-mythological document, really. It not only tells us how things came into being, but it demythologizes creation because you had all these ancient peoples believing in multiples of gods. They worship the sun, the moon, the stars. They worship various parts of creation and nature. And God comes along and says, no, 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 I made all those. There's only one God, it's me. You don't need to worship nature. You don't need to be afraid of nature. So verse 1 very simply refutes now polytheism because one God created all things. Indeed, God says to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 10, he says, these gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth. And the psalmist echoes that sentiment in Psalm 96, verse 5, all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So we have a clear testimony. Verse 1 also uh, refutes... Materialism. Materialism very simply says that, that matter, all matter, is eternal. It's always existed. But we know matter had a beginning. God created it. So verse 1 refutes it. Verse 1 refutes the, the uh, belief in dualism. Dualism very simply says that uh, from the uh, eternity past, good and evil existed together two dynamics, where in fact God was alone when he created. So it refutes dualism. Verse 1 refutes humanism. Humanism says that man is ultimate reality, when in fact verse 1 says God, not man, is the ultimate reality. We've been saying this for a long time. It's not about us. It's all about God. It's God that we worship. It's God that we exalt. It's God that we love. It's God that we trust. It's God that we depend on. And yet the world says just the opposite. You've got to trust yourself. You've got to depend on yourself. It's you. It's you. It's you. No, no, no. It's not. It's God. And verse 1 refutes evolutionism because it says very simply, God created all things. God created all things. They didn't evolve and so verse 1 is a very, very important verse in a very, very important book. And I think it amazing that when there have been so many anti-God philosophies, as we've just reviewed them, and they affect untold, and they have affected untold millions of people, haven't they? And they still do. I think it's amazing that in the face of all of that, the Bible makes no attempt, no attempt whatsoever, to prove that God exists. Think about that. Verse 1 of Genesis simply takes this fact for granted, doesn't it? 
just takes it for granted. As though it were so obvious that only a fool could say there is no God. <laughs> Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart there is no God. You've got to be a fool to say there's no God. That's not sophistication. That's not being educated and erudite. That's being foolish. You've got to be blind. A blind, deaf, and dumb person knows there's a God. Why? Because God has revealed himself where? In their heart. Who was the gal that... that, that uh, Helen Keller. Totally cut off. You read her autobiography. And when the gal, what was the gal's name that broke through? Ann Sullivan. Ann Sullivan finally broke through the silence. One of the first things that she told Helen Keller, there's a God, and, and Helen says, I already knew that, I just didn't know his name. Oh. That's cool. Romans chapter 1, verse 19, 19 and 20. Paul says, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them, that word to, go back to verse 19, please. See the word, God has made it plain to them? That preposition can also be translated in them. He's made it plain in them. You go on to verse 20. He says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen not obscured, but clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. When men stand before God on Judgment Day, no one's going to be able to say, well, I didn't know. God's going to say, yes, you did. I made myself clear to you. How did you do that? To that which was made. No excuse. You have to be a fool to say there is no God. Tragedy. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God, Elohim is the Hebrew word. It's a plural form, but it's also translated singularly. Interesting word. El is the singular form translated God, but it's always Elohim in this passage. It refers to God as creator. Whenever you see Elohim, whenever you see God, not Lord God, Lord God, always in the Old Testament, speaks of relationship. And you always look, when you see Lord God in the Old Testament, the context is always relationship. But here, it's simply referring to God in his creative, omnipotent, majestic being and power. But it's the plural form, translated in the singular, suggesting plurality to God. And then you go to verse 26, which we'll look at next week of chapter 1. And God said, let me make man in my image. That's right. The plural pronouns are used there. So Elohim, plural, translated singular, God. Let us. So you have the beginning right from the get-go. When God says let us, he's not talking to the angels. He's talking within the context of the Trinity. God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The first, second, third person of the Trinity. Now, certainly we don't have time to go into that doctrine, but we'll talk a little bit more about it next time. Elohim, created. The Hebrew word here for that, bara, is used always only of the work of God. This is a very unique word, and it always references the work of God. Only God can create. 
Only God can call into existence that which did not previously exist. I love that. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, the latter part of the verse, God calls into being that which does not exist. I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. When I don't see any hope, when there's no earthly hope, I worship a God and depend on a God and trust in a God who can call into being that which does not exist to help me. I'm not a left. I'm not left to my own devices. I am not hopeless. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. The universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Beloved, men, men can only make things. Men can only form things. They cannot create things. The work of creation is uniquely a work of God. I think it's absolutely cool that God can speak to nothing. Nothing hears his voice and becomes something. If you're going to worship a God, what kind of a God are you going to worship? Some puny God that can't do something like that? I want to worship the biggest, baddest dude around. Excuse me, God, but contextualizing this. God alone is infinite. God alone is eternal. He alone is omnipotent so that it was possible for him to call the universe into existence. Speak it. Now again, for some people, that's just such a hard concept to grasp. But we understand that there is power in our words, isn't there? I mean, we have uttered words that have absolutely destroyed people. But we can also utter words that what? Lift them up, transform them, build them, strengthen them. We know, just at our puny level, that there's power in words. How much more so the words of the infinitely powerful God are creative. So it's not such a a far thing for us to believe that. He is infinite. See, the only alternative to this, by the way, an infinite, omnipotent God who can speak things into existence, the only alternative is the concept of an eternal, self-existing universe. That concept is incomprehensible, that the whole universe was always there. Some people want to believe that. The choice comes down to very simply, it's either an eternal God or eternal matter. That's our choice. You can't have both. You've got to have one or the other. Either God was eternally created at all, or it all existed eternally, independent of God. You understand what I'm saying? You can only have one or the other. That's our choice. We know that eternal matter is, is, is impossible if indeed the scientific laws, and certainly the scientific law of cause and effect, is valid. Random particles of matter cannot, by themselves, generate a complex, orderly, intelligible universe. Well, what about the Big Bang? I don't know about you, but when I have a Big Bang, it creates disorder, not order. It goes from order to disorder. You explode a bomb, and you have disorder. Somehow... Somehow people think, no, we had a Big Bang, and all of this order came out of 
the Big Bang. How? I just, I, I can't see it. Not to mention uh, creating living persons. Not just the order of the universe, creating living persons uh, capable of applying intelligence to the understanding of the complex order of the universe. Get me there. <laughs> just get me to the eye. Somebody just get me there. I want to suggest to you that a personal God, an infinitely personal, powerful God, is the only adequate cause to produce such effects as the universe and man. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created space and matter and time. Now think about this. This is absolutely this is this is fascinating to me. The universe is actually a continuum of space and matter and time, no one of which can have a meaningful existence without the other two. Space, matter, and time are all coexistent, all simultaneous on this continuum of the universe. Kind of like the Trinity. All coexistent together. Isn't it just like God to make his creation kind of like him, reflect him? Space, matter, and time. Matter. Now, we know that matter uh, includes energy, but matter must function. It must function in both space and time. Isn't that true? If you have not space, matter is irrelevant. If you don't have time, matter is irrelevant. For matter to be relevant, it must function in a context of space and time. Does that make sense to you? This is mind-boggling stuff. Think about this. What about space? Space is measurable, and space is accessible to our sensory observations only, only in terms of those entities and events that happen in the context of that space. So I'm walking from here to there. Right? You're observing this, right? I'm an entity, and, and something is happening. But it's happening where? In the context of space. It requires matter to be observed and time. Isn't that cool? I know your minds are going... <laughs> There's a point to this. The concept of time. The concept of time, likewise, is meaningful only in terms of those same entities and events existing and transpiring during that time, which requires space and matter. They're all coexistent. All of that to say this. I can translate Genesis 1-1 this way. The transcendent, omnipotent God called into existence the space-mass-time universe. All three of those dynamics exist at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. They are all interdependent, much like the Godhead, the Trinity. The question comes up now, when, when? 
When did God create this space, mass, time universe? Isn't that the question today? A lot of people are saying, when did this all happen? When did this happen? Well, some, say, some people say a billion years ago. Some people say two billion years ago. Some people say that in order for all of the complex processes to have occurred, to arrive at what we have today, and for all of the mistakes to be self-correcting, It had to take, not one, not two billion, it had to take at least four to five billion years. That's what some people believe. And then there are people, like me, who believe that maybe he's only 10,000 years old. Not five billion years old. After all, how long does it take God to say, let there be light? <laughs> billion years? Can you say it in a nanosecond? Sure. Now, the point is, nobody knows for sure. There's lots of speculation, lots of evidence put forth on both sides for a young and old universe and Earth and so forth. But the bottom line is, nobody knows for sure. No one was there. <laughs> See, it depends on whether you, whether you want to correlate the Genesis account with the great geological age system. So you're taking the Genesis account and you're trying to correlate it with the, ge with the geological age system, which, remember, assumes a uniformitarian view. Uniformitarian means that we're, we extrapolate from what we see now back and we say if everything occurred at a uniform rate, then it all had to start some billions of years ago. That's a huge assumption. That's a huge assumption. So your choice is, well, do I want to equate the Genesis account in creation uh, with geological age system, or, or, what's my only other alternative, uh, do I simply let the Genesis account speak for itself? You see, it all comes down to this. It's a matter of interpretation. It all comes down to a simple matter of interpretation. Is it a literal six days or is it six long, indefinite ages of time? Well, what does the Bible say? Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, puts it this way. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. And then in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, the account says, evening and morning the first day. Now, it seems to me like evening and morning the first day means a 24-hour day. Of course, I'm kind of simple, so that's where we are. Now look at verse 3. Verse 3 of our passage. This is the first record of God speaking in the Bible. This is the first recorded words of God speaking in the Bible. Now look what he says. What does he say? What are his first words? Let there be what? Light. 
Let there be light. I want to call your attention to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Listen to what he says. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God's word, beloved, brings what? Light. What's the song we sang earlier? Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. If your life is dark, if you're depressed, if you're discouraged, if you're hopeless, if you're, if you're going around in circles, if your thinking is futile, you need light. And you're only going to get that by his word coming into your life. Is it important to read the Bible? Yeah. Yes, it is. Good. Now, what did God create when he said, let there be light? What exactly did he create when he said, let there be light? Well, it's obvious that visible light is primarily meant, since it was set in contrast to darkness in the verse, but we know also that the presence of visible light uh, and visible light waves necessarily involves the entire electromagnetic spectrum, doesn't it? So when God said, let there be light, he created not only visible light, he created the whole electromagnetic spectrum, which at one end of the spectrum involves all of the uh, ultraviolet and short wavelength rays. And at the other end of the spectrum, he also created all of the infrared and the longer wavelength rays. Can you imagine that? Isn't that cool? He said, let there be light. And he created this whole spectrum of light. Amazing. Absolutely Amazing. Let there be light. So, in the beginning, God did what? He created the heavens and the earth. He spoke the heavens into existence. And the earth, now notice this, the earth was formed out of what? Water. The earth was formed out of water, a watery mass. Genesis tells us about that. In verse 1, Verse 1 tells us what God did, and verse 2 tells us how he did it. Isn't that cool? Verse 1 tells us what he did, verse 2 tells us how he did it. Look at verse 2. He says, the earth was at first tohu and bohu. Those are the two Hebrew words translated formless and empty. The earth was formless and empty. It was tohu and bohu. It's sort of a chaotic mass. Just a, a mass. And what was the mass made up of? Water. Peter tells us, if you recall back from Second Peter chapter 3, he says the earth was formed out of water and with water. So it was water. Now question, does water have a shape? This is very important. Does water have a shape? No, it does not have a shape. It has no form, has no shape. Water takes the shape of whatever you put it in. Isn't that correct? Right? So in the beginning, it was just a formless mass without any shape, the earth. Water. It existed in the heavens, which is space that was dark. See, how do you know it was dark? Well, because it says it, verse 2. Darkness 
was over. You see that? So here we have, we have this formless, shapeless mass of water existing in darkness. And by the way, if you study carefully the six days of creation, you'll find that the first three days have to do with giving form to the formless. And the second three days have to do with filling up the emptiness. So it's formless and empty. The first three days, God gives form to that which was formless. And the second three days, he fills up that which was empty. Fascinating. So for the better part of the first three days, he gives form, and then he starts at the end of day three through day six to create the creatures that fill that form. So it starts out then as formless, and then all of a sudden God does something. Look again with me at verse 2. This is very important. I don't want you to miss this. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Do you see that? Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, that's the NIV translation. In the New American Standard, which is a, which is a literal word-by-word translation, the second part of that verse has it this way. The Spirit of God was hovering or moving over the surface of the waters. Now, that word surface is there twice in this verse. This is important. Two times, this mass now has surface. It isn't just a watery mass anymore. It's got a surface. It's got a shape. Surface implies shape. Does that make sense? Surface implies shape. If it's just a, a watery mass, if it's, if it's like, does water vapor have a shape? No. All the water molecules are there, but there's no shape. It's just a, a mass, if you will. But now there's surface. Surface implies shape, I want to suggest to you. God somehow pulled this mass into a shape. You have in verse 2, I submit, the creation of gravity. It doesn't say it anywhere. It's implied. You have in verse 2 the creation of gravity, which pulls the molecules together and holds it in shape. Gravity does that. The Holy Spirit was moving over the waters, creating gravity, pulling these into a shape. And the shape is a, interestingly, what is the shape? It's a sphere. Well, we know now, looking back, right? we got pictures from the moon. Just round shape. He pulls it into the shape of a sphere. He made those water molecules cling together. That's what gravity does. It makes the water molecules cling together, and he does so in the form of a sphere. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 27, again, in the New American Standard, it says, He inscribed a circle on the face of the deep. Wow. So when he caused all the water molecules to compress together, he did so in the shape of a sphere, a circle. He inscribed a circle on the face of the deep. It was this formless mass, and he made a circle. He used gravity, especially designed, to make that circle and to pull that thing into the shape of a sphere, the circle of the earth. And then verse 3 says, 
And God said, let there be light, and there was light. All of a sudden, light existed. And there weren't any heavenly bodies. There was no sun. There was no moon. No stars to give light. Light existed. Fascinating. The whole spectrum of light, as we suggested earlier, was created. And all that that spectrum uh, exists as. And then he turned to the earth in verse 6. And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. God says, I'm going to do something here. I want to do something. I want to take some of the water in this watery mass, and I want to pull it up here, and I want to leave some of it down there in the sphere, and I want to create an expanse between the two. So he's got this watery mass in the, in the shape of a sphere. He says, I want to take some of this water, and I'm going to pull it up here. I'm going to leave some of it down in the sphere, and I'm going to have a space in between. Cool. Can you imagine thinking about that? So you had the watery mass, you had the expanse of space now, then you had water like a canopy surrounding the earth. A canopy around the earth. This describes, beloved, the heavens that were long ago. God created them, and the whole thing, he did the whole thing, and guess what, in a couple of days. He spoke it into existence. So now what he's got, he's got, he's got, the, he's got the heavens that were long ago, he has light. He has a canopy of water above, an expanse of space in the middle, and then there was a watery mass with a surface that held together in a sphere. God called the expanse, in verse 8, sky. He did all this by day two, but he's still not done. Verse 9 said, And then God said, Let the water under the sky... Now what's that? What's the water under the sky? That's the mass in the form of a sphere. He says, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place. Let Now notice this. Let what appear? Dry ground. Not ooze. Not slime. Not wet ground. Let dry ground appear. I think that is a fascinating touch. Let dry ground appear. All of a sudden, whew, now you've got dry ground. Dry ground, dry land is injected into this watery mass, and all of a sudden it starts to rise up everywhere, and water gets collected into rivers, lakes, and seas. The earth now begins to take shape. The lower waters were collected as God spoke land into existence. And there you have it. There you have it. He took the tohu and the bohu. He gave it shape, pulled some of the water up, surrounded the whole globe with the canopy, left an expanse of space in between the canopy and the surface, and into the surface of the watery mass, he injects land, separated the seas from the land. And then, you know what he says? What does he say in verse 10? It is good. It is good. Don't you do that like when you, when you make something, when you assemble something, you worked on it, worked on it, you got it all just right where you want it, and you, say, you step back and say, man, that's good, that's cool. <laughs> that's part of being made in the image of God. We, we look back and we say, we pronounce goodness on it. Good job, we tell our kids. 
Good job. Comes right from the beginning. God says, it is good. I want to suggest to you it's better than good. It's perfect. Absolutely perfect. Perfect place for man to live. God's created a canopy of shelter around the earth which would completely block out any harmful radiation. A perfect environment. Perfect. And man lived in that world long ago. You say, how perfect was it? How perfect was it? You read Genesis chapter 5. We'll get there later. But you read Genesis chapter 5. You see the genealogy after the fall. This is after the fall. How long did people live? On average, on average, this is mind-blowing, on average, 900 plus years. Wow. Cool environment. Why? Well, because the, the effect of sin hadn't yet taken its toll on, on man, but more so also we had this protective canopy that surrounded the globe that protected man at that time from any harmful radiation. There was no direct sunlight and there was no rain. We're told in chapter 2, verse 6, that a mist watered the ground in the garden. It doesn't rain on the earth until chapter 6. Then it really rains. <laughs> Remember Bill Cosby's deal about Noah? <laughs> Noah. <laughs> it's going to rain. What's rain? You'll find out. The waters in that marvelous canopy filtered out all the damaging rays of the sun and beautifully watered the earth with dew, a perfect environment, and people lived on average of 900 plus years. On the third day, not only did he create dry land, but he created vegetation. This is great. Plants and trees, apparently full grown. Apparently full grown each with their own seeds. Now notice this. Each with their own seeds to allow for reproduction according to their kinds. That phrase, according to their kinds, is ten times in Genesis chapter 1. What's the importance of that? Well, there's no common ancestry now for the plant life as evolutionary theory proposes. All the plants didn't just come from one plant and just go through this marvelous process of, of change. No, they were all created individually, distinctly, according to their kinds, each one with seeds so that it could reproduce. On day four, this is fascinating, on day four, day one, what did God create? Light. He said, let there be light. Day one, light is created. Day four... The generators of the light are created. Wait a minute. Is somebody mixed up here? No. God creates intrinsic light first, and then he creates the generators of that light second. Only God could do that. Only God can do that. The chief purpose of both, we're told in verse 4 and verse 18, the chief purpose of both was to divide the light from the darkness. Apparently, light rays were hitting the earth as it rotated on its axis those first three days. How do you know that the earth was rotating on its axis those first three days? Because it says morning, night, the first day. 
So apparently it was rotating. And those light rays had to be coming at the same intensity and the same direction, hitting the earth as if there were bodies created to provide that light. So light was coming during the day as though there were a sun. Light was coming at night as though there were a moon and stars, even though they had not yet been made. Is it just as easy for God to create the waves of light energy as to create the generators that produce such light? Yeah, can he, can he make light first? Now notice this. Verse 14 gives us the reason. In verse 14, the second part, there's no need for the generators, there's no need for the sun, the moon, and the stars, except to serve the additional function. Notice this. Except to serve the additional function as signs, as signs to mark the seasons, the days, and the years. Why did God put the sun, the moon, and the stars up there? As signs. Does he need them to generate light? No. He said, I'll put them up there. I don't need them. They need them. I'm going to give them so that they'll bless their life, so they'll have ways to mark off their seasons. And oil, yeah, I'll use them also to give off the light. Wow. Day 5, verses 20 through 23. God said, let the water teem. Notice this. Notice this. Read this closely with me. Look at your Bible. Read this closely with me. And God said, let the water teem with blobs of protoplasm, out of which would evolve every kind of marine animal, including the great whales and birds of every kind. Does it say that? No. Interestingly, interestingly, Evolutionary theory, evolutionary theory has marine organisms first. Now note this. Has marine organisms first, then land plants, and later the birds. That's the order in evolution. Genesis, however, says that land plants, not marine animals, came first, and then marine creatures and birds came simultaneously. Somebody's mixed up. Somebody has it wrong. I don't think it's God. He was there. And day six, day six, verses 24 and 25, we have three categories of land animals now being added. We have the livestock being added. Presumably those would be the animals that could be domesticated. Your horses, your cattle, your sheep, your dogs, and those such animals. Notice I left one out. They come in the third grouping. <laughs> the second grouping, creatures that move along the ground, possibly includes the insects, smaller reptiles, mammals, rats, those kinds of things. And then thirdly, the third group, wild animals, lions, elephants, hippopotami, cats. <laughs> possibly even the dinosaurs in that last category. People always wonder about the dinosaurs. How could dinosaurs get so big? What happened to them? Well, the key to understanding dinosaurs and the whole reality of dinosaurs is that you have to understand what dinosaurs were. Dinosaurs were reptiles. And one thing that is unique about reptiles is that their growth, there's no limit on their growth as long as they live. So if you have, if you have prior to the flood, even after the fall, 
you have men living to 900 plus years on average. Then you have dinosaurs, large lizards. You have lizards living 900 years. I want to submit to you, if you have a 900-year-old lizard, you have a huge honking lizard. Does that make sense? Then in chapter 6, we have the flood, which wipes out all life on earth, and the extinction now of the dinosaurs, save those few dinosaurs that, that Noah took on the ark, and I'm sure he took little ones. He didn't have space for the big ones, and you have to feed those big ones, and then you have to clean up after them. So, so there you have it. The world is now fully prepared. The world is now fully prepared for its next and last edition. And what will that be? Man, man, the crowning jewel on God's creation. And we're going to pick that up next time. Now, I have some homework for you. For next time, I want you to read. Novel idea. I want you to read the first four chapters of Genesis. For next time. How often do you think I want you to read them? Oh, you're beautiful. I love you. Every day. Every day. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. Thank you that we have you and that you have revealed yourself to us. Thank you that you have made us. Thank you that we are not the product of blind chance in an immeasurable amount of time. Thank you, Lord, that we have been designed. There is order that you have purpose and meaning for us. Thank you that we count. Lord, we love you this morning. As we come to your table, Lord, again, we are reminded that how much we mean to you, what a price you paid to buy us back from the slave market of sin. God, we love you. We praise you this morning. Help us, Lord, to prepare our hearts as we come to your table and celebrate this wonderful memorial meal remembering Jesus. Thank you, Father. Amen.